Amen. Thank you for your good singing. Those are incredible truths we get to sing. That last line, that even though the last stanza, whatever it's called, that we were, he is ruler of all, yet he still, there's a place for our cares and our needs in his heart. It's so important for us to grasp as we come before this passage this morning and even as we come before the Lord. But if you would, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in this gospel probably in the next year. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to use one for this morning, we've got some. Our ushers are here ready to give some Bibles out. You just slip your hand up real quick and we would put one of those in your hand. We've actually got the passage marked for you. See any hands out there? Anyone need a Bible? Looks like we're good to go. Good. Well, just make sure you keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1 as we work our way through this passage. Let me put this up here for you to look at for a second. I was walking through an inner city somewhere. This is the side of a dumpster. All right, God, what now? And I remember that really struck me as a very good question when we find ourselves up against so many things in life. And we ourselves might find us, as we bump into the things that we run into in life, we might be asking that same question too. All right, God, what now? What now? I mean, think about the news. If you ever have a time to listen to it. There's wars all over. I mean, various parts of the world, people are going at it. It's unsafe. Think about ISIS and terrorism. And what does that mean for us as potentially some of this terrorist activity getting closer and closer to our soil? Or disease, all of a sudden Ebola pops up and people are dying. And what happens with all these different diseases that just ravage our world? It seems like daily... There's something with destructive weather out there. Some people have too much rain. Some people don't have enough. So we've got drought. We've got flooding. Read about monsoons and hurricanes. I mean, just the weather that can devastate and take lives and destroy property. Just bringing all kinds of pain and difficulty to people's lives. The economy, murder, racism, poverty. And these are big And they're oftentimes global. And we can feel the weight and the magnitude of it. But maybe you don't even have time for that big global stuff that's out there because in your own world, there's so much going on. You can't even get outside of that because you feel the weight of what's going on in your own world. As elders, we regularly pray for the needs of this body. And so oftentimes the needs that you're experiencing in your life, we're either a part of that or those needs come to us. And we are up against a lot as a congregation as well. We're battling psychological issues, struggles, peer pressure, whether that be at school or work, peer pressure to conform, to run with the crowd, to be just like people around us, dress like them, talk like them, act like them. Pornography can be such a battle for people who attend this church. Lawsuits, legal issues, being in the system and trying to find your way through it. Marriages dissolving, just hanging by a thread. Parenting conflicts, family members walking away from the faith and the pain of all of that. You see, battles rage for Children, youth, adults, doesn't matter your age, you're not exempt from these kinds of things. 
They're in our lives. Just think about the people around you. Oftentimes, we can feel we're all alone, that we're the only one that feels, all right, God, what now? But really, we're surrounded by people who in our worlds, the worlds in which we live, we can feel the struggles of what's going on around us. Now, what complicates it is we can often live foolishly. So life is happening to us and we can act foolishly. We can make bad choices in the midst of our struggles. Rather than feeling the weight of the world and and turning toward God and finding life in him, we can go out and find our own solutions, our idols, the things that we can turn to, we think will bring us life and bring us satisfaction and we can experience that now. You see, living foolishly begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. God had given Adam and Eve everything. And then Satan comes along and says, maybe God's withholding something from you. And Adam and Eve foolishly turn away from God and turn toward that which Satan holds out there for them. It's foolish. Their own children, it gets passed on. Cain and Abel, we don't know all of what was going on in Cain's heart, but he felt something toward his brother Abel. And he takes his life. He murders him. And it just continues on. You get to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, and and it says this, that God looks down on the world and then he has these three words. He sees only evil continually. We're six chapters into the Bible. I mean, we are up against a lot. And throughout the Old Testament, there continues to be a plan that's unfolding that God is going to do something to right this mess, even beginning back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says, the seed of the woman, and we understand ultimately that to be Messiah, to be Jesus, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, the one who opposes God, the one who wants to hold out things and say, Adam and Eve, how about this way? The seed of the woman is going to crush this one who opposes God And so we come throughout the Old Testament watching God pulling together a plan. And what we find as we read through the Bible is God not doing plan A, plan B, plan C. Well, let's start off with Sinai and mountain shaking and voice thundering down and Moses bringing down tablets for people to obey and sacrifices. Ah, it didn't work. Well, let's try. No, see, God hasn't done that in the Bible. There's been a continuous plan by God moving forward so that you and I, we could enjoy life so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could walk with him. And today we're going to turn our attention to the gospel of Mark. And Mark wants to pull all of this together and show us that ultimately all of this has been pointing toward Jesus. He is the one who is life. He is the one who, when we say, all right, God, what now? God says, Jesus. That's going to be the answer to that question. All right, God, what now? Jesus. And Mark wants us to see Jesus as clearly as we possibly can. Now, we're going to be going through Mark for probably up to a year or more. And so every week, we're going to get Jesus. All right, God, what now? Jesus. All right, God, what now? Jesus. We could throw any situation you want to before God and say, all right, God, what now? And the answer will be Jesus. Because it's the gospel. 
What we want to do now is we want to read through. We're going to be in the first 13 verses this morning. And then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to work our way through this passage. So Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up water immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with wild animals and angels were ministering to him let's pray Lord We come before you today and we ask that you would make your word alive and powerful. We ask that you would help us to know you. And in the midst of all that we're walking through in life, whether it's struggles against sin or whether it's relationships that have gone sour or whether it's financial difficulty or decisions we need to make, Lord, would you help us to rest in Jesus and to put our faith in him. So Lord, we ask that you would meet us in special ways and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled the message this morning, Undeniably the One, because I think that's what Mark wants to do for us today. He wants to set Jesus out there and for us to see him undeniably. This is what God's been up to. It's Jesus, he's the one. Now, as we think about coming into the gospel of Mark, I wanna give us just a little bit of an overview. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the New Testament. We never want to take that for granted. But in the New Testament, we have what we would call four Gospels. These are stories about Jesus. And three of them are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we call them the synoptic Gospels. In other words, we can see them or look at them together. They, they generally track the story of Jesus very similarly. And so some, some of the Gospels have an event that another might not have or they give a different perspective of a particular event in Jesus' life. It's fascinating to read Mark along with Matthew and Luke. So something that you might do in the days ahead as we're going through this particular book, you might want to see what passage we're preaching in Mark um, on a given Sunday. And you might also want to be reading along in Matthew and Luke. 
and see what, the, what, what is said about Jesus in those gospels as well. And then we've got John. It's much more focused on the teaching of Jesus and especially towards the latter part of his life. But you might want to read through that as well. But we've got a gospel here and, and what I call Mark's gospel. You, you can see that we're, we're calling this series The King and the Cross. It's right on the front of your bulletin. If I were to title this series, it would be Jesus in your face. That's what I would call it because I think in the gospel of Mark, that's what Mark does. It's Jesus in your face and you are not left with any questions about who Jesus is. He just constantly is just pushing Jesus right toward the forefront. Sometimes people refer to Mark as the briefest of gospels, but actually when you read his accounts, they're full and they're it's fascinating the way he writes, so colorful and vivid. I mean, he just puts Jesus right out there. And you don't ever walk away from a passage and go, well, I don't know what to do with Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him when you read through Mark's gospel. So this is the in-your-face gospel, as I would call it. And Mark is the author of this. This is the one it's usually attributed to. And Mark, if you, again, familiar with the Old Testament, if you think about, I mean, the New Testament, you think about the journeys, the missionary journeys that we find in the book of Acts. And Paul was on a journey with Mark and Mark quit the journey. And Paul wasn't real happy with that. And so he wanted nothing to do with Mark. And so he took Barnabas and they went their own way. And then Silas picked up Mark and they had their missionary journey Eventually, it seems that Paul and Mark worked out some of their problems. Paul refers to them as being useful um, to him in another letter that he wrote. But that's the Mark that we're talking about here. And Mark basically spent his time with Peter. If you look at the end of 1 Peter, Peter's first letter that he wrote, he refers to Mark, my son. And oftentimes that is a word that is used for someone that you have brought to faith in Christ and discipled along the way. So Mark was really close to Peter. In fact, listen to what this particular historian said. When Peter had publicly preached the word at Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, those present who were many exhorted Mark as one who had followed Peter for a long time and remembered what had been spoken to make a record of what he said. And Mark did this and distributed the gospel among those who asked him. And so really what we're reading here is you've got this, this man, Mark, a disciple of Peter who's been walking with Peter, listening to his sermons being preached very carefully over and over, and then he makes a record of that. In many ways, this gospel could be called the gospel according to Peter. These are Peter's words, really. Mark is simply recording what he has learned from the man that he has walked with all of these years. Now, again, on the front of the bulletin, you can see our series title is called The King and the Cross. There's two distinct sections to this book. We've got part one and chapters one through eight. That's what we read last week. And then we'll preach through those chapters and later on we'll read through Mark 9 through 16 in a service as well. Now, what's interesting about these two sections is you find this first section begins with a voice from heaven towards the beginning, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We just read that in verse 11. We get to the second section. We also have that same beginning in 9-7. This is my beloved son, listen to him. That's at the transfiguration. And both of these also end with a declaration from chapter 1, verse 1, 
where the first section ends, it says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The first section ends with that declaration in 829 where Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And that's where that first section ends. The second section ends, it's gonna pick up chapter one, verse one, the reference to the son of God. And this is where Jesus is hanging on the cross and the centurion says, truly, this man was the son son of God. And so it seems that these frame these sections. The first part is clearly showing us the identity of Christ. The second part is clearly taking him to the cross. This is the Jesus in your face gospel. And we're going to learn through this, about this gospel throughout the weeks ahead. Now, let's call this first verse. You can see the major divisions of this sermon in your bulletin if you want to follow along. But this first section The introduction to this gospel is chapter 1, verse 1. This is basically the topic sentence to the book. The beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what's the book about? Well, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's what you're going to find throughout this book on every page. This is a gospel about Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he did. The good news of God, again, looking through all time and all the messed up situations and all the foolishness that we bring to the situation, the plan of God of all time ultimately culminates in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of what God has done for a humanity who's messed up, including us. God has done something for us. Edwards in his commentary says this, For Mark, the gospel refers to the fulfillment of God's reign and salvation in the fullness of time. In the appearance of Jesus in Galilee, a new age has dawned that requires repentance and faith. In Mark's understanding, therefore, the gospel is more than a set of truths or even a set of beliefs. It is a person. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the focus. The kingdom of God The kingdom that God inaugurated is bodily present in Jesus of Nazareth. We've been singing about the kingdom this morning. The Bible focuses on this kingdom, but yet we look at the world in which we live and we say, where is that kingdom? Well, it it centers in Jesus, ultimately. And so we're going to continue to look at this Jesus throughout this gospel and understand Mostly, look at chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of Jesus, that he's the Christ, the Messiah, fulfillment of Old Testament teaching, and he's the Son of God. This is not just a good teacher, a good moral man, another prophet. This is God become flesh so that he could die on the cross for my sin and for your sins. And so Peter will end that first section with, you are the Christ. The second section will end with the centurion saying, truly, This man was the son of God. For Mark, not only is this his topic sentence, for Mark, it all comes down to Christ. And we must see that this is true for us as well. Again, the question, all right, God, what now? It's Jesus. And so whatever it is that you bring, whatever it is that you're struggling with in life, whatever it is that is your battle, know that you're not alone and know the solution is the same. It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be the gospel. 
And so we want to learn more about Jesus in the days ahead. Now, the second point we have in these verses before us is this gospel that Mark wants to focus on is anticipated by the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, he begins verse 2 with, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, there are hundreds of prophecies that could be referred to. When we look back through all these pages of the Old Testament, there is on all over the place looking forward to someone who's going to come, to a day that's coming constantly, God trying to work out his plans. And Mark wants to bring all of this to the front and center. And so he does that with this prophecy from Isaiah. Now, it's attributed to Isaiah because it's mostly by Isaiah, but it's actually a compilation of two different passages. When you go back to Malachi, that's the last book in the Old Testament. The people are back in the land the temple's been built, the altar's there. They're, they're again trying to engage God in worship, but yet they're still in a mess. It's still not the kingdom. And then we have this prophecy, Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now this is talking about the glory of God coming into the world. And so the fact that this gets applied ultimately um, to this messenger bringing Jesus really draws home this point of the Son of God is who Jesus is. But he's going to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You see that promise? God's people are in the land and they are waiting for that day. Oh, bring the day. Bring the day. They're looking forward to that day. But they don't know what it is. It's not like a birthday. Or it's not like Christmas Day and all the presents are piling up underneath the tree and you know on December 25th that day is going to be here. When they look to this day, they have no idea how many months, how many years, how long is it going to be, how much more tragedy, how much more difficulty, how many more foolish decisions before this one comes. But that was their hope. In chapter 4 and verse 5 of Malachi, it actually says, I will send Elijah Elijah, who went up to heaven in the chariot, the idea that he was going to come back. And that's why there's even questions when John the Baptist comes on the scene. Are you Elijah? Are you that one? There's a lot of confusion trying to figure this out because we know what's coming. We aren't really certain when. And then Isaiah 43, a a couple of years back, we went through the book of Isaiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. See, the bulk of this is Isaiah. So Mark says Isaiah, but he's pulling together Old Testament prophecies. And there could be many that could be pulled together here. You see, Mark's point is to get us to Jesus. Not to do a theology of prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament. He just wants to get us to Jesus. And here's the passage he throws out there. Because the way he's going to take us to Jesus is going to be through John the Baptist. And so Isaiah is the passage that he uses to bring this about. Again, God is not operating from plan A, plan B, plan C. It's been a clearly articulated plan throughout all of time. And Jesus is going to be fulfillment. They are looking for this messenger And then what happens? Well, we find that this gospel is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And the way that's going to begin is John appears. So here's this passage. I'm going to send my messenger. Verse 5, verse 4, John appeared. You see how Mark just is clear. He's to the point. My messenger, John appeared. 
baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. This was a big event. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And then it shows us that John's this Elijah-type figure. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, he was weird. And he's out in the desert and people are flocking to him. And he's preaching about one who's going to come. And he's baptizing people. We don't really know what this baptism is. It's not as if John had opened up his Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, and God said, baptize people and call them to repentance of sins. John is not doing that. We aren't really certain all the time what he's doing, but I think it probably has some kind of connection to being in covenant relationship with God. If you went back to Exodus 19, this is when God has brought his people out of Egypt and he's going to enter into a covenant relationship with them. And the people say, all that the Lord says we will do. And the Lord says, you will be my people, I will be your God. And then he says to Moses, hey, have the people cleanse themselves. Have them cleanse themselves. Have a a baptism of sorts. Why? Because I'm going to come down on Mount Sinai and they're going to see me and we're going to enter into a covenant relationship and I'm going to be in relationship with my people. It seems that John's baptism is somewhat connected to this. God's people have been all over the place. They had been so rebellious, they were displaced from the land. God brought them back into the land with a promise of a kingdom, and they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. And then John, the one preparing the way, the voice crying in the wilderness, and people begin to flock. Why? Because they wanted to return to their God. They are in a process of being cleansed. Why? So they can enter into that covenant relationship with God so that covenant can come down on them. The culmination of it, the kingdom is what they're waiting for. And it has everything to do with repentance and confession of sin. We see that clearly. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for forgiveness. And they were coming out to them, confessing their sins. This is an awakening. This is a turning heart back toward the Lord. It is a preparation. God, do your work. They're putting their attention on the Lord. The Lord is on the move. The Lord is working. And John is the forerunner of all of this. But it's not about John. It's about the one to come. But what John was doing, we can see clearly from Josephus. He's a historian. And he says, John exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety toward God. In so doing, to join in baptism. This was a a sign that they did that I am the one who wants to love God and love others and await his kingdom. And he called people to radical lifestyles. You can read about that in Luke chapter 3 where it wasn't just about putting belief. It was about a radical change in the way they lived their life. It was a total change. Jesus said the two great commandments, love God, loves others. And that's what John was calling these people to as well. The fulfillment of the law, awaiting the kingdom. But again, Mark's focus is not John. It's on the one who is coming. And so in verse seven and eight, he says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. People flocking to him. He says, no, wait a second. There's one coming who's mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I'm not worthy to, to get on that dusty, dusty, dirty foot and untie those sandals. This would be the job of a servant. He says, the job of a servant with this one who's mightier than I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to be a servant to this man. That's who's coming beyond me. John makes it very clear. It's about one coming after him. So secondly, we see here Jesus comes to fulfill the promise of the ages that one would come who would make all things new. Look at verse four, John appeared. Now look at verse nine, just as simply put, in those days, Jesus came. So we've got this prophecy. There's a voice crying in the wilderness, one who's coming to make the way. John appeared. Then John says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his sandal. Jesus came. Slowly, Mark is bringing us to this focus on Jesus. And in the same way there was confusion about John, there's confusion about Jesus. Even John was confused. When he first saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one. But then he gets put in prison and he starts to wonder why. Because when the Messiah came and the kingdom came, prisoners would be set free. They would be released. And here he sits in prison. Are you the one? Because I'm in prison. And Jesus says, all of a sudden Jesus does all these miracles. And then he says to his disciples, you go tell John what you just saw. In other words, he is the one. He is bringing in his kingdom. And Mark is trying to make that clear. Don't you like it when things are clear? And that's what Mark's trying to do for us. This past summer, some of you know, I mean, I caught my monster largemouth bass. I mean, finally got my 10-pounder. You know I had to work it in here somewhere, right? Finally, I should have had a picture. Finally caught that 10-pound bass. And I had promised myself when it, whenever it was 10 pounds and over, it was going on the wall. And my heart was thumping. I mean, this thing was 10 pounds. And I put it in a five-gallon bucket. I drug it up on shore, put it on the water, got all the boat out, loaded up the truck, put it in the back. And I'm driving down the road. I can hardly talk my heart. Boom, 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 boom. I said, Dad, call a taxidermist. I got my monster. It's going on the wall. Call a taxidermist. Get directions. We got to get him there right away. So I met my dad at the house. We took pictures, you know, and all the stuff. And then we got back in the truck, head off to Leeds, Alabama, which is a small town. And we had to actually go to a suburb of Leeds, which means it's, it's even smaller. And so the guy had given us these instructions. And so my dad and I are watching all the landmarks. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Well, the next landmark was a four-way traffic. How did, how did he say this? Let me, I, let me four-way stoplight. Now, listen, this has nothing to do with the state of Alabama. This could happen anywhere, okay? Anywhere. This, this is, so please, this, I should have said I was in North Dakota or something. But it was a four-way stop. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you have a four-way stop, but mine is you've got four lights and it's all flashing red. Okay, that's a four-way stop where I come from. So we're looking for a four-way stop and all of a sudden we're out in the country. We're like, okay. Let's turn back around. We retrace trace our steps. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, four-way stop. We, we keep driving. There's no four-way stop. So finally, we get the guys on the phone again. We back up. It's like, okay, got that, got that, got that, got that. And they go, well, no, and that, now you turn left. I was like, but there was no four-way stop. So we look back. It's just a regular traffic light. Now, the reason this is so weird for me is because there were 10 traffic lights. And why he called that one traffic light the four-way stop was beyond me. And so I said to him, 
Why'd you call that the four-way stop? I won't even give you his explanation. It was bizarre, made no sense. It was unclear. You can't find your directions when it's unclear. And Mark says, for all of you, I want this to be really clear. There's been a lot of mess and it's been moving forward and God's had his plan and he set forth his prophecy that one was coming. John came and John says, there's one coming after me. He's mightier than I, greater than I. I can't even reach down and unloosen his sandal. Jesus came. And this is the one. This is the hope of all time right here. Jesus is undeniably the one. And notice how uh, Isaiah 25 verse 9 puts it. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. You see, Isaiah and his prophet was saying, this day is going to come and there's going to be such an excitement. And then Jesus came. And Jesus has come. And I'm telling you, in the ways that they should have been excited, and we're not going to find a lot of excitement, Mark. They're going to reject Jesus. And eventually they're going to put him on a cross. And you know what? Sad to say, we've got all of this for us too. And we can reject Jesus. We can walk away from the only one, the undeniable one, to give us life. Abundantly now, eternal to come, we can reject him and we can pull away. And Mark says, I want you to see Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he sets us out there for him to see and he puts all this out for us. And notice the way he puts it. This is the way he makes it undeniably the one. He's announced in the Old Testament, and not only in the Old Testament, verses 2 and 3, but by John in verses 7 and 8. John, in his own prophetic way as well, after me, one is coming. Everything's been pointing toward that. And then he's baptized by John. And this becomes a huge event in Jesus' life where Jesus not only aligns himself with you are God, and I'm awaiting your kingdom. But he himself is the fulfillment of that. He says to John, it is right that I should do this. He's actually the fulfillment of everything that John is proclaiming in that moment. And as we think about the rest of the things that happen in this passage, Jewish tradition recognized three phenomena that would signify the inauguration of God's kingdom, the opening of the heavens, the descending of the Holy Spirit in a voice speaking from heaven. I just want to show you how clear Mark is in trying to lay all this out. Listen to what it says in a particular historical document for the Jews. It says this about this one who will come. The heavens will be opened and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him. That's that Holy Spirit. And with a fatherly voice is from Abraham to Isaac. And the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him. That's what they were looking for. And John says, guess what? Watch what happens. And so we see in verse 10, the heavens are opened. And the Holy Spirit comes down. In Isaiah 64, verse 1, it says, the prophet says, Oh, that you might rend the heavens and come down. And he does. The heavens are torn and the Holy Spirit comes down into Jesus. And then that voice comes from heaven as well. This is my beloved son. I am well pleased 
with him. These events signify very clearly for Mark, for the Jews who waited for the kingdom, that this is undeniably the one. This is the one. This is the one. And so what's Jesus going to do in light of this? He's going to forgive people of their sins. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to heal withered hands. He's going to tell lame people to get up and walk. He's going to set the religious leaders straight and remind them what God's law is all about. He's going to do this because he is the one who has come. But even though it's so clear, undeniably, this is the one. What's the next thing that happened? It's not a party thrown in his honor. It's not, he's here, celebrate, get the balloons, get some cake with that big, thick, fluffy icing on it. No, it's not what happens. He's approved by overcoming temptation in the wilderness. In verses 12 and 13, the spirit who now is in Jesus immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. See, 1 John 3, 8 tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. And so when the king is here, it's not a party thrown in his honor. His very first step is to go towards the adversary and in the wilderness to meet that adversary. And we don't learn much about it in this account. You can find it in other accounts, Matthew 4, Luke 4. It'll tell you more about what goes on here. But Mark wants to keep it clear. He took on the devil and he won. He survived that. He went on and that's what Jesus is going to do. And eventually he's going to march right to the cross and that's where sin will be defeated, Satan will be defeated, death will be defeated, but we're still in the already not yet. We still battle against all these things. Why? Because that Jesus went back to the heavens and he's going to come back again and then he's going to establish his rule and reign and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And that's the day we look forward to. And Jesus is going to pick this up next week. This is our passage for next week. What does Jesus say? He proclaims the gospel and he says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so when we think of that question, all right, God, what now? Jesus says, it's me. It's the gospel. The kingdom is here with my coming. You need to repent and put your faith in me. And maybe you are here today and you have never put your faith in this message of Jesus. And maybe it's still not clear to you what this message is. We would love to help you understand more about Jesus. If you have put your faith in Jesus and maybe you're still, all right, God, what now? I don't get the connection of the gospel to my life and you're in struggle what Jesus calls you to do and what Mark calls you to do is continue to look unto Jesus continue to look unto Jesus and maybe all you have is tomorrow morning to wake up and say Lord you are my savior my life makes no sense but I look to you I put my trust in you would you help me and Jesus will be a help to you. This is God's plan. Jesus has come. 
He has made a way for you to be reconciled for God and he has made a way for you to have abundant life now and eternal life to come. Now Walt's gonna come up and lead us in a song and some of you may need to pray with someone. You may wanna find out more about Jesus with someone. Do I have a couple of Grace Group shepherds who could just help me down front? Just a couple of volunteers or a deacon. So right down here, would you come? And anyone else, someone could come over here. Uncle, uncles come right over here. We got Moyer out there. If you would just want to just open up your heart to someone and say, I want to know more about Jesus or please pray for me because I feel so disconnected from Jesus. As we sing this song, feel free to come. We'd love to meet with you. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have a plan and you invite all of us to know you. So Lord, help us. Help us to look to you. Help us to turn to you. Ignite faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.